And we're live. What's up, folks? It is my sincere pleasure to welcome you to the episode 8 edition of the Emulsion Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Kana, and it's normally my job here to serve up some facts and my opinions basically on everything that mattered to me in the last week of the food-slash-restaurant-slash-chef-fine-dining realm. I make sure to include a story at the end that um, is basically cool outside of that genre, but um, something that I found interesting as well, as I normally do kind of with my interests in the business, tech, lifestyle buckets. If you're a new listener, after last week's episode with Dave Hadley, I'd like to personally welcome you. I'm super, super grateful to have you listening. But before we get into the show, our current lack of sponsorships makes it possible for me to do a little bit of a quick personal plug uh, for some of my own kind of projects that I have going on. I haven't even technically announced this yet on any of my other social channels, but this is pretty big news. I'm doing it first here for maybe not so much you podcast listeners, but anyone that's joining on Facebook Live. Um, I've fully rebuilt my own website from the ground up, and I've done so, amongst other things, to more or less make it possible to host this podcast on iTunes. So that's right, you can finally listen to the Emulsion podcast, just like you listen to your other favorite podcasts, no need to kind of go through SoundCloud or any of that, um, on iTunes. If any of you out there are still interested in using SoundCloud, I'll still be uploading through there, um, no stress about that. Um, I know we got a couple people following along from last week's uh, podcast on iTunes, but I'm just super excited about being able to kind of offer up that platform to you folks. So the link to that, uh, it's really easy to remember. It's justincana.com. Uh, but that link will be in the show notes. Uh, I've got a few episodes already uploaded, but I'll make sure to get them all uploaded before this episode eight goes live. So it'll be hopefully in chronological order. Um, but that's another perk of kind of tuning in live amongst being able to get your questions answered and start a conversation. Um, and other big news that's happened since we last talked, uh, I have a very, very exciting, uh, announcement to share with you guys. And that's DOD hashtag dish of the day. My YouTube and Facebook video series that I basically started back in Norway is back. So I'm committed to doing one dish a week as kind of prep for a pop-up that I've got coming up, uh, here in Seattle. I'm super excited to do a little, um, cooking and putting that back on the internet. Um, so go ahead. If you already aren't already subscribed on YouTube or you don't like this Facebook page that the live stream is happening from already, make sure that you go ahead and smash those buttons so you can stay up to date with everything that I'm up to. Uh, dish of the day for people that don't know is basically me taking dishes that are either in my head or dishes that I've kind of like come up with and basically testing them uh, in an environment where I document it so that you can kind of like hear what I'm thinking, hear what I'm doing, um, learn along with me, document the whole process. Uh, all right, so that's enough promotion. Let's kind of get into today's stories. This is going to be a, a long show. We have a lot of we got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Uh, the first one that I want to talk about today is more or less a headline that you've probably seen floating around, even if you aren't in the restaurant industry, and that's uh, Jay Rayner's straight-up annihilation of Le Sank in the Four Seasons uh, George V in Paris. So let's start with some background info here. He, Jay Rayner is a critic for The Guardian, and he went to strictly observe. He just wanted to do a piece about high-end dining and with three Michelin stars and a price point of nearly 600 euros for two. So that's food, service, and what he calls, quote-unquote, modest wine. Um, it makes sense to go there. The The chef, uh, Christian Lesquier, if I'm saying that right, uh, was recently named French Chef of the Year, uh, as voted on by other chefs, French chefs. So, I mean... That's, you know, uh, 
question in itself, but it's understandable why he would want to have expectations of like opulence and luxury going to a place like this. But what he found, though, apparently was, quote unquote, just bloody awful. And I'll let you read the full article because there's a lot of really great, great quips in there, like the fact that there's, quote, thick carpets to muffle the screams, unquote. And, quote, canapes we were instructed to eat first is a transparent ball on a spoon. It looks like a Barbie-sized silicone breast implant, end quote. So I'm leaving two links in the show notes. One is Vox, actually, a channel that I've grown to really like uh, in the recent months. Um, after reading about Ezra Klein, the site's founder, He's kind of a pretty visionary um, news entrepreneur, Um, but his vision on delivering news is super, super interesting. So they cover this story in kind of a way that's targeted to those outside of the industry. So you get um, kind of like they end the they end the article referencing a video that they made about um, expensive wine and does expensive wine matter. Um, But for those of us that are in the industry, Eater did a piece where they took Jay's quotes and put them on cat photos. Uh, so that's also linked up if that's your thing. Again, the original article is linked in both. Uh, that's a piece that he published to The Guardian, um, so definitely make sure you read the whole thing. My favorite part is definitely the shiny, beautiful photos you get while, like, scrolling through the article, and then at the end, Jay shares his iPhone 7 photos he took while actually eating, and the comparison is, is pretty funny. Uh, but, but before we just chuckle at that and kind of move on, this is kind of my question of the day for you guys. And that's more or less, I want to know how you feel about these scathing reviews. They aren't new, right? I mean, Pete, Whale, Pete Wells did Danielle and Per Se, Ryan Sutton also did Per Se and Larpege, and even Jay Rayner has a pretty, um, lengthy history of these kind of vicious reviews tearing apart institutions. I mean, maybe with the exception of Guy Fieri's uh, spot in Times Square, I'm not sure that counts as an institution. But my point is, I get a little bit weirded out when we have people like critics that come in and look at restaurants objectively. I'm not sure that's the right word, but they have none of that kind of like pat on the back stuff you get with chefs going out to eat at other chefs' restaurants that, I, I mean, I see a ton of. Like, whether or not the meal was good you kind of end up patting your chef friends on the back because you both do the same work and you would never want to kind of like jeopardize any of that for anyone. Um, And the other thing critics don't have is kind of that excitement or the hype that you get from people that don't go out to eat so much. Um, I find that a lot of people that, you know, will go and drop 600 euros on a meal, the last thing they want to do is tell their friends that they had a bad time. Um, So they really... um, Critics, in my opinion, sometimes put a very well-educated perspective on establishments because they don't have neither of those um, vendettas going in. Um, But why I think it's funny is that because places like this survive for years, basically, doing basically the same food that they have been doing day in and day out. And now, all all because of a review like this, they have to make some sort of an amends to remedy the hit that they're going to go through. Um, I mean, I've personally seen it when a, when a critic comes into a restaurant that I've been working at, they make a few remarks about a dish that aren't even that bad, and the dish will leave the menu the next day. Um, even Per Se and French Laundry discounted their prices on their supplemental courses after Ryan Sutton's piece on their price-to-value uh, exchange that he experienced when he ate there. That was a piece that, I mean, that was news that wasn't really even covered, but all you had to do is they post their menus every day. You just look at their menus, and you see that their prices dropped on their caviar and foie gras supplements. Um, so back to my question to you is basically, how do you feel about brutal reviews like this? Are they needed to kind of keep the restaurant scene a level playing field? Are they just kind of more or less a ploy by the critic to get clicks and views? I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Um, 
Next up is a piece by Eaters, traveling food writer Bill Addison, and that's all about a new genre that he's observed eating around at restaurants around the U.S., and he's he's labeling it, quote-unquote, new romanticism. So what is that? He starts by saying, quote, The aesthetic they share is painterly, layered but not towering, polychromatic and ingredient-wise, often as rich as flora as it is in fauna. Dishes are rendered as pretty, geometric, and often artistically chaotic landscapes. It isn't as glaring an aesthetic it isn't as glaring an aesthetic development as some earlier fads, but like the architectural tall food and east-west fusion that ruled the 1990s. But in its subtler elegance, what's happening now is just as significant. So he's basically taking this term new romanticism basically to equate it to the 19th century term romanticism. So and I'm quoting again, this aesthetic movement emphasized, to quote its strikingly poetic entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica, the individual, the subjective, the irrational, the imaginative, the personal, the spontaneous, the emotional, the visionary, and the transcendental. So he basically references Rene Redzepi, kind of points a little blame blame at him as kind of like this foraging, um, very organic, uh, plating on ceramic, plates coming into the equation and then he says quote new romanticism satisfies a chef's urge for intellectual innovation but it also allows her the emotional space to cook from the heart so to him it more or less um is the opposite of the faux haphazard squiggles and dots from the squeeze bottle 1970s and 80s and the intellectually detached deconstructionism of the el Bui inspired modernists so what i'd like to do um more or less for you is make sure that you look at the article first you see the photos you've more or less like if you've gone to any sort of trendy restaurant in the past i'd say probably say like four years you'll understand a little bit more about what he's talking about and you'll get a frame of reference for it but for me it's an interesting observation right because while modernism was quirky enough to get its own title and genre this phase we're kind of going through right now in the culinary world is something that I more or less uh, will call my friend with my friends tasty ass food. Uh, it's basically what we want when we go out to eat. Uh, we don't need any sort of like hoity-toity uh, anything. We just want to have nice tasty food. And when you have these chefs that are operating at that high level, it's very easy to get that um, at places that are kind of operating at this new romanticism um, level. Some places that he references... Um, places like Estella, Parachute in Chicago, Contra, um, just to kind of give you a a frame of which restaurants we're talking about. Um, And I have my own opinions on it that I've more or less talked through with friends of mine in the industry, whether we're just like having a drink or we're having a meal and we sort of get into this current state of the industry, state of the union um, talk. So this, to me, it comes from several sources, right? You have this What's basically happened is you've had this separation in the late 90s and even the early 2000s where there was more or less a separation between fine dining and casual food. So you had these places that did luxurious menus with high-end products and then casual food spots basically for the rest of us. I basically grew up eating the latter. I didn't I, I, I didn't have a Michelin-starred fine dining experience basically until I went to New York in uh, in college. So when all of these cooks from that time period and basically the sous chefs running the show – Uh, when they moved on, they had this, I don't want to be like my parents attitude uh, when they were thinking about their next projects, right? So um, what you end up having is then the economic crash happened in 2008 and a lot of these restaurants closed. So basically what happened as the economy started to pick back up, these chefs 
would leave these places without basically any desire to do anything with fine dining, but they had the culinary chops to make really incredible food. So places like I referenced, Estella, Parachute, Contra, they all popped up basically doing well-executed, approachable food at more or less an $85-ish tasting menu price point. So that's more or less half of what their predecessors were charging. With that comes basically the use of less extravagant ingredients, so using offal and offcuts, using uh, vegetables that are more or less considered like stock vegetables, like carrots and celery root and beets, uh, using lots of herbs, using preserved stuff, and using things like umami boosters that will make um, simple things taste delicious, so smoking a lot of things using cheese. Um, so now you start choosing, like, closing the gap, right, between high-end and casual, because I've eaten at casual places, the ones that specialize in small plates, sharing options, and you basically end up paying almost $70 a person to eat there at the end of the day. And then on the flip side, fine dining restaurants have lowered their prices to try to compete with, like, going down to even like $140, $175 just for the food. So here I see a weird transition happening, right? Because it's got to ebb and flow. The economy has been great for a long time, and there's there's places that will literally deliver you amazing food with a few taps on your smartphone, Postmates, Uber Eats, DoorDash. And once places basically realize that they don't have to have a dining room anymore to serve people food, it's going to be a really interesting time to see where things go, right? So until then, I'll continue to enjoy the, quote, artistically chaotic landscapes of new romanticism cooking, but I'd be interested to see where this kind of goes going forward. Like I said, it's not going to really be something that kind of leaves this sphere, uh, us talking about this kind of stuff. I don't think it's going to eventually get to a point where we, in 10 years, talk about uh, on the street with normal people, remember new romanticism cooking. But it's interesting that he kind of made that point in that comparison, and I I thought it was worth talking about. Moving along, I want to talk super briefly about the World's 50 Best list. We covered it last week when they did 51 through 100, and the full 2017 list is out. 11 Madison Park in New York City is number one, which to me is weird because they're closing this year to do a renovation. We talked about that on the show already. Um, It's the first time an American restaurant has been on the list since 2008, um, and he dethroned... uh, Osteria Francescana um, from being number one. They are number two now. Um, so what I do want to cover, though, relating to this, and because they do it better than, than I can, is Eater's piece on why they're basically covering it at all. Um, they questioned themselves, and they basically admit to it, and I admitted it to it, too, that they research the list, they stay up all night just so that they can be the first people to report it, and the author, Amanda Clut, if I'm saying that right, she states, quote, if someone realizes a list, if someone realizes a listicle and no one in the media covers it, does it even exist? End quote. And the basic takeaway is essentially, I'm quoting again, the, our audience wants to know the contents of the list. I want to know. Diners, restaurateurs, chefs, food world, hangers on. They are curious. Regardless of their opinion on the list and how it's made, they want to debate the choices, congratulate their friends, and discuss the pitfalls. I would just end up clicking on someone else's coverage. If you're in a similar boat, I suggest you search... Oh, that's that's the end of the quote. Um, so if you're in a similar boat, um, I suggest you you research Ulterior Epicure. Um, he did a post actually in 2013 uh, referencing the world's 50 best list. You'll basically find a great discussion from him, who is someone who is not a chef, but he really empathizes with a lot of chefs uh, and cooks. He spent a lot of time around cooks and kind of has listened to what they have to say. Um 
and his whole piece is basically about not believing in the list at all. Um, so it's a very interesting point of view on a, a very, very impactful list. Um, so let's transition uh, from that very, very serious note to a point that actually relates to the world's 50 best list. And that's a pretty hilarious piece that I posted on my uh, Facebook page earlier this weekend about Heston Blumenthal and his interview that he did with an Australian TV show because the awards were held in Melbourne this year, uh, talking all about what makes a great restaurant. He literally goes on a tangent and everyone's reaction is basically, this guy is tripping, but you should watch it. It's, it's pretty cringeworthy at the start, but it's, it's, it's worth the laughs for sure. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. Next up uh, is actually me recommending another podcast. I, I know, I want, I want you to stay with me here till the end, but Eater does a podcast of their own. It's called um, Upsell. And while sometimes it's, to me, it's just basically annoying that there are people that are so on the bleeding edge of culinary trends that they talk about food trends in a really, really annoying manner, uh, they, they just kind of like fling their own uh, opinions around about being so over these things that are, you know, just being in New York, I get it, you're, you're, you're on, the, on the edge of the trend and you're constantly experiencing trends. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff to be gained from listening to this episode, and that is the episode that they covered with um, Flynn McGarry. Y- you know Flynn McGarry, the teenage chef that all of us got pissed off about a few years ago. Uh, well, he's 18 now, and there's a lot of cool stuff to be gained from this episode and from listening. And as someone who's also young and interested in doing pop-ups and kind of figuring out the economy of a fine dining style space, in my opinion, it's worth a listen. Uh, that's linked up in the show notes as always. Just to keep rolling here, I, I've got a, I've got a lot of stories to cover. I want to give a little bit of a shout out to two people in Seattle doing really awesome things. For those of you that don't know, I am currently living in Seattle. I moved here uh, almost three months ago, so it's still very recent to me. So I'm just kind of discovering the movers and shakers here in the city. But the first one that I want to cover is um, Linda Nicholson, who runs Salty Seattle's Instagram. Um, she was literally just featured on Instagram's account, like the Instagram account. Uh, So huge props to her for that. But basically what she does is some pretty incredible stuff with um, colored pasta. So it's not just cutesy stuff. Uh, I mean, it is nice to like there. She definitely delivers a pop of color to your, your feed, but she comes up with really cool um, techniques with pasta as well. So she does like a really cool annulotti style pasta that basically has two fillings in the same piece of pasta which is pretty cool. So definitely check her out for more of that. Again, Salty Seattle is her Instagram handle. And the second person that I want to highlight is Eric Rivera, a guy who, not unlike me, who has basically chosen the Pacific Northwest to return to after a stint in the fine dining game in bigger cities. So he spent time at Alinea as the culinary liaison and has basically returned to Seattle. And after uh, doing some consulting gigs, he is the current head executive chef of the bookstore bar in the Alexis Hotel downtown here in Seattle, Um, he has the ambition of creating a fine dining experience with two different facets. So the first is going to be a nine course local experience to encourage kind of locals to to come in. And the second, I'm not 100% sure I can divulge these details, um, but Anna and I went to his author's corner uh, yesterday for brunch, um, had a really, really awesome 13 course brunch yesterday. He crushed us. Uh, it was great, but, um, he's got a little, a a lot of really, really interesting stuff happening. Uh, and he's definitely going to make moves here in the, uh, Seattle area. I'm excited to have coffee with him this week and 
talk shop a little bit. So follow him on Instagram. He's dropping news on his nine course menu today. He's doing an event in May. Uh, Both of their accounts are linked in the show notes. Lastly, and our final story of the day that's not industry related is a little bit of rapid fire hip hop news that I've actually found pretty inspiring, not just for the music, if you're not into that, but for the implications that it has towards creatives in general. Um, First, boom, rapid fire, Uh, Kendrick Lamar's music video for Humble, his new song. Uh, The cinematography is on point, and the song is also super dope. The cinematography from that has been also covered by a few channels on YouTube that I watch to get inspiration for my vlogs, so it's definitely getting talked about uh, in the cinematography realm. Um, It's got 47 million views on YouTube right now. I'm pretty sure it came out like 10 days ago, so that's... That speaks for itself. Second, boom, uh, Vox, that news network that I mentioned earlier, did a great piece on Grey Poupon, the mustard, uh, the fancy mustard that you've has been around for, for decades now, uh, and its relationship to hip-hop. So I, I'm not sure if that means that it's food-related, but we're covering it in this, in this section. Uh, but just hearing rappers basically take a product related to luxury and um uh, having money basically, and basically rhyme it with similar words in, in different songs. So you hear different artists rhyme Grey Poupon with, uh, coupon in different songs from different, like different time periods to like eight years later or something like that. It's basically over a 25 year period. I think that's super, super cool to hear. Uh, but last up, we've got some sad news, uh, for people like me and that's, uh, Jay-Z has taken his music off of Spotify. Crazy, I know, but uh, so his music is now only available on Apple Music and his own platform, Tidal. So for people like me that use Spotify Premium, uh, if that's a compelling reason enough to switch, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I don't really know what else he can do after doing such a move like that. Uh, I love Jay-Z. I've loved Jay-Z for a while, um, so that's going to be a little bit sad. I guess I'll be doing a little bit of YouTube searching if I want to hear his stuff, or maybe I'll have to get some of my CDs shipped to me, huh? So with that, this has been uh, episode eight of The Emulsion, and regardless of if you've been watching live here or if you're on the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, I want to do a little bit of a giveaway to thank you for your attention. Um, I'm going to grab these. Uh, Remember a few weeks ago, I covered a publication called Communal Table here on the show. Um, I'm going to flash these to our uh, Facebook uh, listeners. Oh, that's going to fall off my desk. Um, So I've got a couple of copies of if you can see that, of their um, publication here. They're pretty slim. I didn't think they were going to be this small. They're going to be more magazine-sized. But uh, Adrian over there was nice enough to send me um, a bunch of different copies of their stuff. So I currently have um, their staff issue, Grace, Thanksgiving, and Valentine's all in my possession. So if you're interested in getting a copy from me to you, I ask that you leave a comment about today's question of the day regarding food critics down below and basically share this podcast on one of your social networks. So go ahead and tag me. Most of my uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter handles are Justin Kana. Um, I'll leave those in the show notes as well. And go ahead and use hashtag the emulsion and it's yours. It's just that easy. So go ahead and maybe also comment on which issue you'd like. Uh, Again, I have uh, staff, Valentine's, Grace, and Thanksgiving. So go ahead and pick which one you're interested in. There's no randomized selection here, just the first six to seven people. I think I have eight issues, and one of them is already going out to the person that suggested this story uh, as kind of a thank you. So the first six to seven people to either share this or follow me and be hashtagged with the emulsion. Those are the three criterias. 
share this podcast, go ahead and follow me and hashtag the emulsion. You'll get a copy from me to you for free. So I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, Hope you enjoyed last week's interview style podcast. This week was more back to our normal news style podcast. I'm trying to find a way to kind of balance the two. Um, Looking forward to hopefully doing another interview uh, episode next week. So super excited about that. Um, Haven't really decided on the person I'm going to do. I have a few people in mind. I'm going to reach out to them this week and make sure that we can bring a different person uh, to the podcast, get some new ideas flowing. Uh, So go ahead and um, comment down below if you prefer the interview style. Also, if you prefer the straight up news style that we've been doing for the past few weeks. Again, I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks in advance. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.